All right, let's do it. Okay, so uh, today I am joined by April Dunford. She is the world's leading expert on positioning for B2B tech companies. Her books, obviously awesome and sales pitch, have a permanent spot on my bookshelf as well as I know many other product marketers. And so April, welcome to the show. Hey, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Okay, awesome. I, now listen, I, I mentioned this to you uh, just a couple minutes ago, but uh, for folks that are listening now, um, April has a fantastic podcast. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to talk more specifically about positioning as it relates to competitive intelligence. If you want more of a primer on on other areas of positioning, then please go check out her podcast. Um, it's very, very good. And I listen to it all the time. Uh, but like I said, we're going to be diving more specifically into uh, positioning as it relates to competitive intelligence. And one of the things that I want to start with um, is kind of the the B2B tech landscape since you released, obviously, Awesome, your first book a few years back. Now, a lot has changed over the past few years. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is just what are some of the things that you've noticed that's been changing more specifically as it relates to positioning over the past few years? Yeah. So, so thanks for asking me that. That's a great question. The first book came out in 2019. So that was pre COVID. And I don't know if it was as a result of COVID or not, but it seemed to me like in 2019, not a lot of people were talking about positioning. Positioning wasn't a thing that people were in general kind of thinking about and trying to wrestle with and do. But I'm telling you, COVID hit and a lot of companies had to take a big step back and rethink their positioning and figure out how they were going to change in response to COVID. And then when we opened back up after COVID, everybody went back and did a shift in their positioning again. So I think my timing was lucky, I guess, for that first book that, you know, it came out at a time when people weren't talking about positioning and then suddenly we really needed to work on our positioning. So that was interesting. The trends thing is interesting. I still think trends are an interesting thing to incorporate in your positioning. If you've got a trend that's happening in the market and you can sort of surf on that, I think it's a really good idea. I think the caution here is the trend is not your positioning. So for example, right now, a lot of people are really excited about AI. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are building AI stuff into their products, but that doesn't make you an AI product. And I think that difference is often very confusing for people. You have a product, that product needs to be positioned in a market. And AI is not a market. I mean, I suppose it is if you're if you're Chad GPT or something. Right. But but for most of us, most of us are taking AI and putting it into our CRM. We're still in the CRM business, but now we have AI powered CRM. If we are in a situation where customers are really interested in trends, we can talk about the trend and we can pull in the trend to try to help answer the question: Why be interested in this right now? But it doesn't answer the question necessarily, why pick us over the other guys? So I think mm -hmm. there's a bit of confusion about that. Specifically, when I'm thinking about how we use trends in a sales pitch, I think we need to be very careful about how we lean into a trend. Often people will use the trend as the start of a sales pitch. So they'll say, oh, the world is changing, you know, the, the, the rise of AI or man, we're producing more data than we ever have before. We have to be a little bit careful there because those trends tend to be kind of generic and any one of our competitors could start their pitch with that trend and then say, and we solve that in the same way we're trying to say, and we solve that too. 
So I don't think that's a good way to use trends, but it may be a good way to answer the question, why is this important right now? Later in the pitch, when I've already hooked you with why is this important? And what I'm trying to do is get a little bit of a sense of urgency, like, oh, hey, you know, this would be a good time to do this because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. And you mentioned, it's funny, you mentioned uh, CRMs, but that speaking of adding AI into the component, one thing that I've noticed is that Salesforce has started kind of touting this new category of sure. AI CRM or, uh, I, yeah, I think that, I think it's like literally AI CRM, the world's right. first AI CRM, that kind of a thing. I will see how that works out. It feels temporary to me when I see them using it. It feels very temporary. It feels more like a campaign rather than a repositioning. Mm. So sometimes we'll bring in something and it'll be temporary like a campaign. So we have a new feature or a new thing. Customers are really interested in it. So we want to run a campaign around that and have that run for six months and really focus in on that one thing because customers are really interested in it. And customers are very interested in AI right now. So I think that's a that's an okay idea in the short term. But they're market category is very clearly CRM. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they are talking about this bigger idea of customer 360, which is kind of an expansion of what they have traditionally been talking about as a CRM. And so I think that's interesting. I feel like they're trying to expand the borders of CRM a little bit to include everything we might do around customers and talk more broadly about a customer platform that would include things like Slack, and MuleSoft and Tableau and the other things that they've acquired over the last few years. I think that's going to be a more interesting one to look at Salesforce doing. I think AI, CRM, everybody's going to have the AI. <laughs> I'm not sure that's that differentiating, uh, but in the short term, it may be an interesting way to like shake the tree and get some leads because I do think that customers are trying to figure out their AI strategy. I think department heads are under pressure from corporate to say, look, if you're spending some money, it better be contributing to this AI strategy. So I think if I was Salesforce, I might do the same thing and say, hey, don't worry, we got the AI. <laughs> We're going to take that we got box. It in there. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but I don't think, I don't see AI CRM as being a category that lasts in the longer term. Yeah. Okay. It won't be differentiating. Everyone, HubSpot's already saying they're an right. AI CRM too, or something like that. Right. So I don't think there's any differentiation there. I think they got the AI, we got the AI. Maybe there'll be a little bit of a fight. We're a little bit more ahead. We're a little bit behind. But I think what customers mm -hmm. really care about is what is the value of this AI thing in the middle of my CRM? Tell me what it's good for. How's it going to make me some money? That story, I think, is more important. Now, that's a great point that you mentioned HubSpot in, in the mix there, too. And the thing that I've noticed about HubSpot is they've really been cranking it up when it comes to mentioning Salesforce and trying to position themselves as more of a CRM as opposed to just marketing automation. They're, they're trying to expand in a lot of other categories. Correct. Now, you've mentioned how it's almost always bad for category leaders to mention smaller challenger type competitors. Now, most would listen to that and be like, okay, if I'm a leader, I'm not going to mention, you know, my competitors, but you said almost always bad to mention. So, so what are some exceptions to that rule? If there are any, like, would there ever be a time where Salesforce would mention something about HubSpot? If you were in a sales situation and the prospect has already disclosed that they're looking at HubSpot, 
then you're going to want to address that. I mean, there's no point in pussyfooting around <laughs> the situation. You might as well just say, oh, well, you're looking at HubSpot. Well, let me tell you why I think we're different than HubSpot. Uh, sometimes you'll have a very specific situation where something is going on. Like there'll be a smaller competitor, but they're punching above their weight because something has happened. Maybe they just got acquired by somebody bigger or did some fancy new release or did something that was a big bang in the market and your, your customers are all talking about it. Maybe, maybe, but what you don't want to do is come in and talk about a competitor that potentially your customer has never heard of, <laughs> hasn't put them on a short list ha or has looked at them and immediately eliminated them. And then you come along and say, Oh, HubSpot. And then I think if I'm the, if I'm the prospect, I'm going to say, well, wait a second, we eliminated them. That's bad. Why they, they're talking about them. It must be serious. Those maybe we should bring them back on the short list. So you'll give me this worry that maybe I haven't done my homework properly. If you mention somebody that I don't know anything about now, I'm terrified. Now I'm like, Oh no, I thought I did my homework. I thought I looked at everything. And here's, here's Salesforce telling me about some company I've never heard of. Ah, I got to go back into research mode and that will stall your deal completely. Uh, if you're a smaller company, like in this case, the HubSpot is, I would say, a challenger mm -hmm. in the CRM space, there is no risk for them talking about Salesforce at all. If you're looking at CRM, of course, you know, Salesforce, of course, like, <laughs> there's a, so you're not sending anybody back to research mode by mentioning Salesforce directly. So you might as well just drive right at the elephant in the room and say, well, you're looking at CRM, you must be looking at Salesforce. It doesn't work that way for Salesforce. So it's neat. If you're the challenger, you can actually take shots at them all day. You can attempt to position them. You can do all kinds of stuff. If you're the leader, it's risky talking about anybody else, unless you already know that the customer has put them on a short list and is looking at them and then, okay, there's no risk there. And now we can talk about them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's inevitable that eventually a challenger will overcome a leader in a category. Is there ever a point in time when Okay, like it, we are at the point where like maybe market share is, is getting pretty close now. This challenger is like about to to overcome, you know, all odds, and they're going to be the leader. I, I'm trying to think if there's ever been like a situation where like it does make sense then for that leader to then be like, okay, we gotta like we gotta really just kind of have a come to Jesus moment and realize we we're at risk of losing more market share than we already are. Is there is there ever a time where then that would make more sense to to start mentioning that that new challenger that's coming up? It may. It'd be interesting to go back and look at like Salesforce versus Siebel is an interesting comparison. It would mm -hmm. be interesting to go back and look at what was happening at the moment when Salesforce was overtaking Siebel. But I think generally when the market leader is being overtaken by this fast follower or a chain, uh, a challenger, usually the market leader is, is imploding. <laughs> like usually something terrible is going on and it's so terrible that the company is just trying to stay alive. I think in, right. the, in the case of Salesforce versus Siebel, Siebel got acquired by Oracle. Oracle didn't want to make an investment in them. They didn't, they no longer had a separate leader. They just kind of fell off the face of the earth. And then it felt like an empty playing field for a while there. And then Salesforce just kind of stepped into that. 
But there's been other situations where one has come and overtaken another. So it would be interesting to go back and look at that. I think most of the things that I've seen where there's a leader, the challenger kind of creeps up sort of close. And part of the reason why the challenger gets so close is the leader has completely taken their eye off the ball in terms of the market. And they're not really seeing that challenger come up behind them until it's way too late, mm -hmm. until the, the market's already flipped. And then they're like, wait, wait, who moved my cheese? <laughs> we used to be the leader. We're not the leader anymore. What this the heck? Sucks. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you've yeah. spoken a lot about the value of positioning your competitors and not just yourself, right? Obviously, you want to position yourself uh, you need that in order to speak to your customers and your prospects. But um, one thing that a lot of people won't do or forget to do is that you have the ability to position your competitors as well. And so one example that comes to mind as someone who did this really well a few years ago was uh, Drift versus Intercom. So chatbot type software, Drift comes in and they very specifically were marketing to marketing professionals. And uh, a lot of marketing professionals at the time were using a tool called Intercom, which Drift came in and said, hey, you know, Intercom is great, uh, but they predominantly help support uh, use cases, not marketers. And so we're coming in and we're going to help marketers. And so if you're a marketer and you're looking for a chatbot software, hey, we're, we're great. Uh, we're a great fit for you. Who else has done a really great job of positioning their competitors? Oh, man, I got I to gotta think about that one. Like me personally, I've had experience doing it, but it would be none that you would you would remember or know anything about because a lot of the companies I worked with were big enterprise things. And if you weren't in there in that space, you wouldn't have known it. But in the early part of my career, I worked for a company and we were in the enterprise CRM space against Siebel back when Siebel was the big gorilla in that market. And we used to position them as, you know, the world's greatest CRM for pretty much everybody. Like we used to just give them the whole market. We'd say, look, they're, they're amazing. Billions of revenue, fastest company to reach a billion revenue in the history of Silicon Valley. You know, great founder, great billions of revenue, hundreds of customers, blah, blah, blah. They're like the world's greatest general purpose CRM. And then we were very specifically focused on investment banks. So we gave them the entire market. <laughs> basically said that they're amazing because it would be stupid for us to come in and try to say, oh, they're a bunch of dummies over there. Obviously they're not, they're doing amazing. They make 2 billion revenue. You can't come in and say that. But what we did instead was we said, look, their general purpose, the reason they're the market leader is they serve anybody doing anything. And a lot of that stuff that they serve is call centers or things. And we were selling to investment banks and that was, that was very effective selling to investment bankers. And we would come in and say, like, do you think you would use the same software as a call center? Really? <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street? <laughs> so we would throw that in there like, oh yeah, call centers all use them. And, you know, we would throw out all this stuff and we'd say, well, look, like we think, and, if, and let me tell you, if there's a buyer that thinks they're special, investment bankers think they're very special. So we would be like, no, investment bankers need something something completely different. This is a completely different way of managing a relationship. Let me show you the features we have that they can't copy and blah, blah, blah. And so we would go in and do that. I think most challenger brands do a decent job of positioning the competition. I mean, that's part of how you get to where you get. 
I think it's an opportunity that a lot of companies just pass up because they're scared of talking about the competition. So they're worried that they'll be seen as bashing the competition or, or a lot of companies will tell me, they'll say, well, we don't ever talk about the competition because people won't believe us. They'll think we're biased. And I just think that's wrong. Like I think customers, if you think about it, I was listening to a guy the other day that had done a bunch of research on why customers buy and, and what they're thinking in a purchase process. And one of the things he said that the research showed was that a lot of customers don't really want to talk to a salesperson. If they could get away with transacting hands off, they would not talk to a salesperson, but they do particularly when the deals are bigger and their stakes and they got to go prove it to their boss and sell everyone on the team. They do transact with a salesperson, even if they could potentially buy without transacting with a salesperson. And then you might ask the question, well, why, if they don't want to talk to a salesperson, why are they actually opting to do it? And the answer is they don't want to hear about you. They're worried that maybe there's something they don't know about what other companies are doing. So as a salesperson, one of the most powerful things you can do is come in and say, dude, we've done a lot in this space. We've done a lot of deals. We've seen a lot of companies. We know what other companies are doing and here's what we see. And that is very, very powerful. And to come in and say, look, there's two, three approaches to this problem. And one approach is to do it like this. And here, these companies, they take that approach. And one approach is to do it like this. And these companies take that approach. And let me tell you about the pluses and minuses of these approach. I'm not bashing the competitor. I'm bashing the approach to the problem. And then I say, look, and now we have a different approach. And our different approach allows you to get at this value that these folks can't because they're just solving the problem in a different way. And that's that's different from yeah. just like a feature comparison, which I like. That's kind of how right. you painted that, which is which is unique. Most people will just kind of throw up a, a massive you know list of features, check here, X here. But what you're kind of describing. We never want to be, if we're in a feature comparison, we are failing in sales. <laughs> in my opinion, like we should never, we should never be talking about features outside of the context of the features that, of the value that those features deliver. So what we should be able to do is what we're really doing, really in a good sales situation is we're teaching customers about our point of view on the market which is kind of the same as saying, why did we build the thing the way we built it? And we built it the way we built it because we looked at the market and we looked at all the other things and we said, this, these suck. They don't do this. I, I wish we had another option that did this thing in a different way. And that would allow me to do X, Y, Z. We need to be telling that story. So we need to start with our insight into the market that says, look, we have a point of view that, that these things are important. And if you look at the other alternative ways of approaching the problem, then you'll see that there's gaps there. Like when I was at IBM, when I was at IBM, I was in the database group and this was a long time ago. And, and we were against Oracle. Oracle's a big database product. And if you did a feature function comparison between us oh and God. Oracle, <laughs> it would be a 9,000 point like checklist an and we would all be the yeah. same all the same. And so we would have salespeople that would, that would try to say, oh, we're, we're a faster database or we're more reliable database or a more secure database. Hair splitting, man. Like, like the differences were microscopic and no one would care about it. But when we looked at it, what we had was 
a really different point of view about the role of a database in an enterprise IT stack. So at IBM, we were really into open systems. And so we had this belief that middleware should be open and you shouldn't be tied. It should be this thing. There should be, it should adhere to open standards. We should have good APIs. It should interrupt with anything you want to interact with, blah, blah, blah. And so we did have a set of features. If you looked at that, our API was better. We adhered to open standards better. So there were a bunch of features that we had there. But if I just told you the features, you would be a bit like, who cares? Oracle, on the other hand, was the opposite of that. They were all about closed systems. They were all about, we're going to sell you the whole stack and database is just part of it, but we're going to give you the application. We're going to give you the middleware. We're going to, everything's all tied together and you buy it all from us. And so they were like the anti-open. And what they would talk about back then, their point of view was with well, the value of that is I can get it deployed really fast and I can get it deployed cheaper. And, and I have one throat to choke. If anything goes wrong, you call Oracle and we're not gonna point at some other vendor and say, no, it's not our problem. For us, the value was database is really a platform for innovation. And if you're a very big company, you want to be able to swap things in and out because things are going to change to remain competitive and innovative. So we had really different points of view on the market. So if you heard our pitches, our pitches were very different. And we were never talking about features. We were talking about, are you worried about openness and innovation? Which for us, because we were selling to like the top biggest 100 accounts on the planet, they cared very much about that and they didn't want to have vendor lock-in. Oracle was selling down market a little bit from us. And those people cared more about their budgets and how fast was it going to be? Could they get it up and running? And, you know, what are we going to do if there's a problem? And they weren't as sophisticated companies, frankly, using this stuff. And so that pitch worked for their target market. Our pitch worked for ours. That is a great example. And it reminds me of in, in your recent book, Sales Pitch, you talk about the importance of differentiated value. Right. And I think that this is something that a lot of companies are, con are confused by. I see a lot of companies using cost, customer support, and ease of use as mm. their main like differentiated yeah. value, which to me, these always seem kind of shallow. Like anybody can kind of claim, oh, like, well, you'll get great support or like, oh, well, like the UX, UI, it's like really easy. Um, but I also recognize, uh, you know, on, on the other foot, like not everybody can have like this massive game-changing feature that nobody has. Um, so what's the right way to think about this? You mentioned kind of having your own POV, but like when you're thinking about your differentiated value, it seems like it can be a feature, but it can also be this point of view. I would, I would love to learn a little bit more about how you think about that. Here's how I think about it. The point of view has to be rooted in reality. Like we can't just make up differentiated value. We don't get to just pull it out of the air and say, oh, we're more innovative. And then the customer says, well, how? And you say, trust us. We just are. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it's that. like, well, no, like, you, I don't know. <laughs> like so we just like throw out at, these words. Exactly. So if you looked at the, at the, if I come back to my IBM Oracle example, like it was, it was rooted in the reality of our product. The reality was we did support open standards better. We did have a better API than them. We were more interoperable with other things than they were. We started with that, but we didn't end with that. We didn't just come in and tell you those features. We went through the process of saying, 
okay, we have a better API. We're more improbable. We're really adhered to open standards. We're really into all this open source stuff. So what? Why does a customer care? Like, why does a customer give a crap <laughs> about that stuff? And the answer is because they don't want to be locked into a vendor. Well, so what? Why do they not want to be locked into a vendor? Because they want to do innovative new stuff and they want to be able to pull stuff in and put stuff in. Ah, let's take a story. Let's tell the story about that because that's the differentiated value that we can deliver that Oracle cannot. Things like, see, customer support's a hard one. All small companies that I work with believe they deliver better customer support, particularly if they're going up against big companies, because big companies tend to skimp on support. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we'll handhold you through the process. We'll be right. your partner, you know, like all that kind of stuff. That stuff I feel like falls into a couple of camps. So one thing is customer support is absolutely important for retention. If a customer has a terrible experience in support, they may churn out on you, but it is rarely an acquisition feature or reason to buy you because you can say you have great support. I guarantee your competitors will also say they have great support and the customer in general does not get to experience your support before they bought. <laughs> so it's your word versus theirs. Like we had, in my opinion, we did not do very good customer support at IBM, but we said we did all the time. We, we won prizes, prize winning customer support. So that one, the only place I think where you can use it is if you are in a market where you are going after accounts that are specifically churning out, usually from some legacy thing where the support was terrible. And the whole reason the customer is in a purchase process is because they're not getting support from their current vendor. And that is the main thing they're looking for. If that's not the situation, we can't actually lean into support as potentially differentiate something that's rooting in our differentiated value. The rest of the things like really easy to use, or we're really going to hold your hand or we're going to get you on board really easy. A lot of this stuff is what I would call objection handling. It's not really value. It's you only care about that stuff after you've decided to buy us. <laughs> and then you're like, oh shit, maybe this is going to be really hard to deploy, or maybe this is going to be big change management effort. And uh, tell me about that. So this objection handling is, don't worry, we've got you. But it isn't the reason they picked you. They decided to pick you first. Otherwise, they weren't even worried about that until they had decided they picked you. The reason they pick you is this differentiated value. Typically, that is rooted in differentiated capabilities of some sort. So those capabilities can be features in the product, but it could also be capabilities of the company. You have professional services and they don't have professional services or your pricing model is different. So you price in a different way or capture value in a different way. And there's value in that for the customer or potentially so not just cheaper, like just cheaper. It's, it's pretty easy for a venture back company to just show up and discount and match your price. Right. I okay. mean, that's the easiest thing to do in the world. Um, so you may have a, a golden opportunity in a short period of time where you can win a little bit on price, but it isn't going to be long before the competitor gets that that's why they're losing and they'll just drop the price to get you in with SaaS software. We'll make it up somewhere on the back end. Um, so often it's not cheaper, but sometimes we can win on pricing model. Like they're pricing one way and we price a different way. And if you do the math on that for these kinds of companies, this is actually a lot better. Sometimes we win on that but usually it has to be rooted in something. So 
often companies will come to me and they'll say, April, I don't think we have anything. Like, I don't think we really have anything that's different. So how are we going to weave this story about our differentiated value when there's nothing differentiating? And I will hear this from a company that is, I don't know, 10 million revenue, 20 million revenue, and they're in market today. And then I'll, so I'll say, what's your revenue? 10 million. Oh, what was your growth last year? 30%, 40%. Oh, what does that tell me? That tells me you're in a very competitive market. However, every day customers pick you. Every day customers do the analysis. They look at your stuff. They get in a purchase process. They make a short list and they pick you. So they're picking you for a reason. <laughs> so what is it? And often what it is, is that the, the company thinks they have no differentiator, but it's all over the place. And it'll look like this, like, well, we have these kind of competitors and our differentiator against them is this, but that's not differentiating against these kind of competitors. I have these other kind of competitors and the differentiating thing against them is this other thing, but these guys do that. So we have nothing that's differentiating. And often the math that the customer is doing is, well, you're the only one that does this and that. That's why I picked you. <laughs> so the company's sitting there thinking, we have nothing that's unique but they do have something that's very differentiating, even though, yes, it's not completely unique in the market, but you're the only one that delivers the combination of things like that. So there's that. Typically that's what we've got. So if you're in market, you're selling, is a reasonable growth rate, there's differentiation. And what we wanna do is figure out what that is, bring it right to the front and make it really easy for a customer to identify it and say, this is why you should pick us because of this, instead of burying it in the middle of all this other stuff that isn't differentiating and they have to go on a treasure hunt to go and find it. And maybe they don't, and maybe they move on and pick someone else because they never did figure it out. And that, and so it all goes back to essentially, you, you again, you talk about this in your books too, but uh, goes back to talking with your best customers and asking them strictly, like, why did you pick us when you had all these other options? Well, can I give you an even easier way to do it? Yeah. <laughs> Which this is kind of it kind of blows my mind. If we are in a B2B company and we have salespeople, that means we literally have an entire team of people talking to customers as they move through a purchase process. If your salespeople are good, which most of the time, if they're not getting fired, they're probably pretty good at what they do. They know what status quo is in the account. They know what other things are on the short list because they ask those questions. That's part of discovery. So they know what we're getting compared to. And when we win the deal, we know why. And when we lose the deal, we often know why. Well, sometimes we don't know so much why we did, why we lost the deal, but we know why we win. Yeah. Pe people will talk about, uh, what is it? Uh, like close loss, no decision. That's one of the biggest I feel like question marks for us, but there's always a decision at the end of the day. There's always a decision at the end of the day. So I think that it's, it, it, should we do customer research? Absolutely. I'm really a big fan of doing win analysis. After we win, let's, let's have a conversation with them and let's take them all the way back. What were you doing at the beginning? And then what made you wake up in the morning and decide you needed to do something different? And then when you did decide you needed to do something different, how did you make a short list? How did you decide which companies to look at? And then you did make a short list. Who was on the short list? Great. Then you picked us. Why'd you pick us? And then here's a good question. Why not the other guys? 
And sometimes it's not so much that you were perfect as the other guys were really broken. And so they, <laughs> you know, and, and you won. We couldn't won. sign with them. Those guys, I, right. I couldn't do anything with them. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I like that win analysis. If you're a small company, the problem with a small company is that loss analysis doesn't tend to give you anything you can do anything with. So one thing is that, you know, you lost. So the customer is not very motivated to talk with you at all. So they'll be trying to get you off the phone and they'll often give you these superficial reasons like the price was too high or, you know, we, we just didn't have the budget. You'll hear things like that. But a lot of times the actual reasoning behind it is we couldn't figure out how you were different than anybody else. This seemed like a risky decision. So we just kicked the can down the road for a year because we can't, we couldn't figure out how to make a decision. It's very, in my opinion, loss analysis is very hard to do. Win analysis, on the other hand, very easy to do. And you learn a lot in win analysis about, you know, what is the, what is the trigger point that pushes a customer into a purchase process? Who are they comparing you to? How'd you come out on top? And there's a lot of stuff in marketing and sales we can do with that information. So I think win analysis, I'm a big fan. We should be doing it every time we win it. If we're a small company, we should treat every deal that we get like the tiny little miracle that it is. And be like, how did this happen? Oh my god! $500 contract comes in. Oh my god! All right, let's do it. Let's see what what happens. It's, it's a miracle. We need to dissect the miracle and find out what happened here. What did we um, do right? <laughs> exactly. And instead, what we tend to be focused on is what did we do wrong to try and fix the what do we do wrong things, which is often very hard. And a lot of times it'll be, you know, we didn't pick you because you guys were too small and too risky and too whatever. And there's not much you can do about that. Uh, but the what did we do right? We can just do more of that. <laughs> let's just figure out what do we do. What do we do right? And let's do more of that. And let's target more people that care about that stuff. April, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad I was able to get you on the podcast. Uh, you've been a, a dream guest for quite a while. And so stoked to have you out here. And like I said, big fan of all of your books. And so anybody who uh, wants uh, some really great material on positioning, please, I encourage you to get April's books. They are very, very easy to read, like not like crazy complex and they're short, which, oh my God, I love that about your books. And so anyway, that's what everybody says. So <laughs> they're too long. I'm serious. So, so I, I, I appreciate that very much. Um, where can people follow you? Uh, if they want to learn more about you or, uh, or any of the stuff that uh, you're working on. Yeah, my website is aprildunford.com, so you could go there. I recently started a newsletter. I'm kind of a lazy newsletter writer, but every once in a while I get the I get the motivation that I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna newsletter stuff. So that's you can see the link to that on my website, but it's I'm on Substack. And then yeah, this podcast, I just finished season one of the podcast, which is really fun. It's called Positioning with April Dunford. And so it's I'm trying to go deep on positioning topics. I just wrapped that up. I'm going to do season two starting in the new year. So you can go binge listen to that. And then I don't really do anything on social media except LinkedIn. You can follow me on LinkedIn, man. Love it. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, April. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Hey, you made it to the end of the episode. I have one small favor for you now. If you could please rate this podcast five stars wherever you're listening to it, that'd be super helpful for me. 
For Spotify, you can only leave a review on the mobile app, and you can do that on the top of the Healthy Competition podcast profile. And for Apple Podcasts, you have to scroll to the bottom of the show's page and click write a review. Each podcast episode takes about five hours of my time from beginning to end, while reviewing it should only take about five seconds of your time. Plus, you'd be making my day. So thank you so much in advance, and see you in the next episode.